Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our course platform at onecommune.com, where you will find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact. Essentially, everything you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. If you are one of the superheroes on the front line, a healthcare professional, supply chain worker, delivery person, scientist, biologist, or government worker, I want to thank you for your service. If you could benefit from a meditation course on your phone, in your pocket, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com, and I would be honored to set it up. Also, I have started writing a weekly Sunday article called Commusing, where I alternately wax poetic and sometimes pathetic around spirituality, philosophy, culture, and family. If somehow you actually want more of me, you can sign up on onecommune.com, all the way at the bottom. And yes, I suppose if you're desperate, you can follow me on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. My guest on the show today is India Ari. She is a prolific singer and songwriter. She's won four Grammy Awards and been nominated 23 times. Her first record, Acoustic Soul, dropped in 2001, and I think I've been humming that song video ever since. She's put out six more records, toured the world, and collaborated with Herbie Hancock, Erica Badu, Akon, Carlos Santana, Joe Sample, and so many others. But today on the show, we talk about a different dimension of her life that's always been quietly present, her spiritual side. India's spiritual element is reflected in her new short film called Welcome Home, which was shot here at Commune Topanga in the very room that I'm recording now. Please check it out on YouTube. It's beautiful. Now, one of the songs in this short film is called Sacred Space, which precipitates our conversation today about what in life is sacred. We talk about her evolving identity and purpose and also hear an amazing story about a poet. I hope you enjoy my conversation with India Ari. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. I have an album that I put out last February called Worthy. And the first single from that album was called That Magic. And so there's that magic, steady love, crazy, and sacred space. And it, we had the idea of just telling the story of a relationship arc. So in that magic, they meet, and that's when everything's all sparkly and fresh and sparks and everything. And then steady love, they move in together, and you see them fight and make up and work on their relationship and get engaged and stuff. And um, it's not exactly linear because I had different leading men and stuff, but the arc. And then we had um, Crazy, which if you listen to the lyrics of the song, it's really about how it really feels to be in a relationship, like the everyday, everyday. And um, then Sacred Space, I, 
I did, I added this song to the crazy video because it's my favorite one on the album. It's all of my friends who are like musicians <clears throat> and spiritual people, it's their favorite one. It was like a special moment in every concert. So I had to find a way to get what I felt my music deserved. And so I work with a wonderful company called BMG. And so they gave me a budget and a half so that I could add <laughs> sacred space. And I was a little bit nervous about that because we were trying to find a way to put visuals to something that's really ethereal. For me, sacred space, the song is very ethereal. But I think what I have learned about images is that sometimes it's not about what you see on the screen, but how you see it on the screen. And so crazy is very colorful and, and bright with a lot of light beams. And, you know, you see the couple inside of spaces and being together and laying in hammock and nature and sacred space looks like you're in a dream. It like has like a, um, a sheen over it, light beams coming off of the skin and fog and dreaminess and glowing white clothes and all this stuff. It looks like a dream. And so, um, for me, crazy and sacred space is the continuation of that story where it's like, even though you found some place where you want to be, what else is there? Sometimes questions come up. And also for me in my own journey, I've, I think I'm talking about like, I think this is very common. In fact, I think this is the point of relationships, actually. There are things that you never know about yourself until you discover them in a relationship, of course. And so that's kind of what sacred space represents as well. And there's a lot of symbolism and people are telling me things that they see because it's a little it's a little bit open, which I love. And also we had Reverend Michael Beckwith. Mm, yeah. And so um, in the beginning, we were making two music videos, but I saw how they could be combined into a short film. And Reverend Michael, we went back to him. He was on set, of course. We went back to him to ask if he would just speak. And I had the pleasure of editing his words in my Pro Tools. <laughs> and I chose a segment where he says at the end, welcome home and from here you shall not move. And that's um, why I named the short film Welcome Home and in parentheses, crazy sacred space. Hmm. And so I did, I had a heavy hand in editing the visuals. I had a, I did the, Reverend Michael's um, spoken word. I did all of his. And in the end, the outcome is a vision a little bit different than what we had when we were on set and a little bit different than the director had, which is why I had to stick my hand in because I was like, this is not, this is not what I envisioned. And you didn't ask me this, but I'm wondering if this could possibly be my last videos like, or something, I don't, I don't know, but I'm not in that conventional music business album cycle thing anymore. And so I don't know. And so I put everything I had into these because I wanted them to, for once, truly capture my energy. So we did real yoga asana on camera and real meditation on camera. And I picked men who look like the kind of men I would look at twice on the street, not models. I so, looked at them twice too, just if that means they anything. Were, They're they beautiful were some men. handsome men. <laughs> they are. And I asked, let your gray, let your silver hair show. They were like, okay. So Yeah. No, I mean it shows the heart and the soul shines through and I can see why you might consider not doing another video. I mean, I hope you do. And I know that your fans hope you do, but I can also understand why this might represent some form of like alloying or culmination 
of a lot of different parts of your life. Obviously, yes. the musician, the poet, the writer, the creative, <laughs> the editor, I guess, in this particular case, or co-editor, <laughs> but also very much the spiritual side of you that I, I know because we've gotten to know each other a bit um, and that you've always projected that. But I think now it's come into like full um, culmination or full manifestation. Like I feel, I feel it. I mean, you're, it's not oblique. You're, I mean, the first shot of the video, you know, you're <laughs> sitting in front of a Buddha <laughs> meditating. Yeah. So you're right yeah. out there now. Yeah. I think that I, over these last years, I would consider the music to be the sugar that makes the medicine go down. Yeah. And so I would hide a lot of my spirituality in the music and literally just hide it. The more I mature, the less tolerance I have for hiding anything. I mean, there are things that are private, but that's different from hiding. Mm. And so with this video, I just wanted to continue the process of coming out even further about who I am and how I live and what I believe. And I went through that process with my songwriting starting in 2009, where I just was like not, I trained myself to stop being afraid to say certain things in my songwriting. Yeah. And um, now I'm training myself to not be afraid of certain things in my public persona and how I am in the world. I just want to be right. all of it. Yeah. Um, can I share with you my first spiritual connection with your music? Yes. Because um, I've always... I've always been a fan, you know, and, uh, you. you know, driving, you know, with the windows down, pumping the tunes and, and that, that <laughs> level of, of fan. But, um, but I think it was in 2016, I was going through some really significant personal change in my life. And, uh, I was in, LA, we, we were in LA and it was live. Um, I think it was at, uh, Oprah hosts the super soul sessions oh. and um and you gave a solo live performance um on the campus at ucla and you know i was cowering in the back i was not in like <laughs> a great place to be honest with you and um and you sang i am light just you with your guitar um those lyrics i'm I try to remember, like, I'm not the things my family did. I have some yeah. of them written. I'm not the voices in my head. Yeah. I'm not the pieces of the brokenness inside. I am light. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was going through this moment where I was just changing courses in life. But I was so highly identified through my job the approval of others, what I thought, pe what, what other people thought of me. And I just had a moment there connecting with your music that was able, I was able to separate kind of the divine part of me, my divine nature from mm. my ego and say, no, 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 I am, I'm not all these other things. And on some level, I intellectually knew that but I felt it. 
um, for the first time there in that theater. And, you know, when you wrote that song, because in a lot of ways I feel like that song has become incredibly emblematic of your music. And I think people's relationship with that song is so deep. And I, even just I was reading the YouTube comments on the video, <laughs> and it's like, it's heavy. You know, it's, there's some real emotional stuff. Did you, did you have any sense for the impact that that song would have on people when you wrote it? No, and I'm even surprised to hear your story. Mm. Um, I, for me, songwriting is a, a spiritual work, like an actual spiritual work. I pray for my songs. I think I meditate over them. I pray intentions into them, like literally out loud. And so the day that I wrote um, I Am Light, it was 12, 21, 12, which everybody was waiting for. And so I just thought I should write something today. And I prayed a really big prayer over it that was almost seemed like ridiculous to ask for. <laughs> I was just like, I want this to touch anybody. I don't remember exactly, but it was, I remember feeling like, should I say this? I want it to touch anybody who has felt any kind of pain that they thought they couldn't make it through or anything that felt so heavy they didn't know what to do with or you know, things I've always often felt. And, but I don't ever know that those things are answered because I also say, may God's perfect will be done. I might be asking for something that's not needed or necessary or whatever. Um, and also when I wrote the song, <laughs> I thought the words I'm light were kind of corny yeah you know i am light. like it sounds like a stereotype of a spiritual person in a movie and but when i get myself into that place where i am allowing the music to emerge and i'm not trying to force it out i trust what i hear that's why i get myself in, like i pray and meditate first and get myself into a place where i'm not judging anything and so I trust what I hear. And so I'm like, this is what I hear. And I wrote a song around it. And when it was done, so often songs are not done the same day, often. Um, but this one took a few hours. And when it was done, it just I just thought it was really beautiful and special. And I thought that it captured um, in a simple way, the heaviness of, of what it feels like to be human. Because it's easy to write a song with a lot of words and a lot of verses, it's hard to write a song that's a simple truth. Yeah. And for me, I felt like I had captured that because I have a lot of, um, you, you heard my, because what I call it is my songversation. That's what I did at UCLA that day where I speak and sing. And in that I talked about the domestic violence in my family life and my history of abuse and like, but I don't say that in I Am Light, but I do say I'm not the things my family did. To be able to, um, crystallize it in a simple way that is what songwriting is and so I felt when it was done that I had achieved that like a good song and it also was it's told my my perfect truth but I also had this training from being in the music industry that was like uh if it's not a single it's not valuable yeah because I knew this song was never going to get played on the radio it's not that kind of song 
Right. But what I always forget and what I Am Light has taught me is that there are so many other places that music lives other than the radio, which is people's hearts. And so I Am Light surprised me because I accidentally made an album that was too long. <laughs> My, the album was called Songversation. It had too many songs because somebody at the label told me we needed extra songs for Target and da-da-da. But they didn't tell me I had to put them all on every album. So I couldn't get them off. And it made me mad because I worked on the album so hard, then, then it's not what I meant, right? So it was accidentally too long. But even inside of that, I Am Light still rose to the top and people kept sending me messages about that song. And it was the last song on the album, so they listened. And so it all surprised me. I did not think it was going to be this way. I thought it was corny in the beginning. <laughs> but it is the only song of mine that I listen to often. I don't ever listen to my music. Like, it'll be so long, I think. Look how high, how, how high my voice was. I'm so <laughs> young and I don't listen to myself. But I listen to I Am Light yeah. all the time. I listen to it today. Yeah, well, there's obviously a kind of a meditative component. How Just even how the song starts that your shoulders just drop and your breathing just becomes easy. Um, and it's interesting that you say that um, your first kind of impression of your own work was maybe a little bit corny or, or, but I think it's the distillation of all of these complicated conceptual and intellectual thoughts into something so simple that can be delivered by a, a messenger like you. And that's the rare piece because I would say like Eckhart Tolle, I think he was actually there the same day at UCLA. Yes, and, he um, was. I forgot about that. And he just sat down in the, his, his, um, his stage setup is very Spartan. He just has a chair in the middle and he'll get, walk on stage and sit in the middle of the chair and say nothing for a good 10 minutes and just saying nothing is arresting enough until everybody quiets down. And he will also just say, you know, I am. But when he says it, it lands. And I suppose that is the hallmark of a, of a transcendent messenger is that you can distill these ideas into something so simple and have them resonate so deeply so i think that's thank what you, you did thank you i think that there is a general um, way of living in modernity if you will um, that feels very separate from the sacred. It feels very separate from the divine. It's, um, you know, and I think, you know, that has its roots in Abrahamic religions and the agricultural revolution and all these other kinds of things. But essentially, you know, God moved up into the sky and here we live on, in the material, physical plane, really separate from all that stuff. And because we don't have great regard for the objects in our life, we treat them as if they're disposable and dispensable, plastic bottles, big lighters, you know, and, you know, it's no wonder that there's global warming and climate catastrophe because we don't value anything here because it's not sacred. Um, and I think that this is, you know, why it is so important to have 
these sacred spaces. And, you know, you mentioned the photos of your grandmother and your great grandmother that, that those aren't just disposable physical items that are devoid of the divine. In fact, those are, that is the divine. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're so used to standardized products. You know, you walk into a Marshall's and there's a dress that looks like just like 900 other <laughs> dresses or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's finding, <laughs> um, not that I've spent a ton of time in Marshall's, to be honest, <laughs> but, but I do have three daughters. Um, um, but to find the parts of life that are unique and interrelated and connected. Um, and, uh, and I think that can connect us more to a life of divinity, even if we have to go out and toil in what my dad calls dull care or the world of the <laughs> 10,000 things or whatever, you know, just the, <laughs> the sidewalk, the gum, like the gum infested <laughs> sidewalks. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's interesting. Did you minimalize and simplify on purpose um, in this, where you're living now, you know, was that a purposeful choice of like, oh, you know, I can just not have too much externality in my life and live more like a monk. <laughs> you said so many things I want to say. Sorry. Answer you. <laughs> yeah. um, you, I love talking with you. Um, no, I was not thinking about simplifying. I don't know that I even have. And part of that is because I have, you and I were texting about this and we were trying to figure out like, it's such a big thing to text about. Yeah, I know. Um, But I have a relationship with a lot of the objects in my life that, and they are sacred to me. So this picture of my grandmother, my great grandmother, my great, great, my great grandmother, my great, great grandmother, my great, great aunt, this photograph, I could photocopy it. And it, it already is a photocopy because my, my great aunt sent it to me. But like you said, it's, it's not just a thing. It's what the energy it carries for you. And so I, I have a lot of things that carry special energy for me, things, actual objects. And so um, a big portion of my apartment is a lot of crystals and jewelry and things I've collected, books. First, um, first printing of a of a um, Maya Angelou book and handmade dolls and just things, objects that are special to me. And so, I don't know that I. Maybe some point I will downsize those things, but I'm not living simply. I just downsized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I also wanted to say because you texted me and asked if I was comfortable sharing this story, and I finally just decided if it comes up, I'll tell it. If it doesn't come up, I won't tell it. <laughs> But it's coming up now because um, we're talking about the sacredness of things. And one of the things that, I mean, there's, I guess there's no point in mincing words. One of the things that really bothers me about our current, our contemporary culture is that it feels like a lot of, it feels like more people than not live a life where there's nothing that they hold sacred. There's nothing that they have reverence for or they're irreverent at the wrong times. It just feel, you know, and it, it bothers me and because, you know, I'm, I come from a music industry lens. So there's a lot of that in the music industry, as you know. Um, and so what you asked me about on the text was something that happened when I held Maya Angelou's one of her canes. 
And so I, I love Seattle. I lived there for several years. But when I was honored to go to Maya's funeral, I met her best friend at the funeral. Her and her best friend were the same age, born exactly one month apart. Maya was April 4th. Um, Dr. Maxine Mims is March 4th. And so she, there was the big funeral. Then there was like a small after thing. And at the small after thing, she got on stage and said we were best friends and told us all about their birthdays. And um, Dr. Maxine Mims is this very dynamic woman. She's the founder of Evergreen State College. She's 92 now, so Maya would have been 92 as well. And she's stylish and fun to talk to, very wise and beautiful hair. Like she's fly. I love her. And so when she was walking from the stage after she spoke, I put myself in her way. (laughs) And I was like, I live in Seattle. She said, who lives in Seattle? Me. (laughs) And so um, we kept in touch. And I finally got to go out to her house. She lives outside of Seattle, like an hour drive. And I finally got to go out there um, in just, was it 2018? 2017. 2017. It's my first time getting to go out there. And she is 92 and has had a really dynamic life. So she has all these sacred objects all over her house. And she lives right on the water. She has a really old, old tree that her deck is built around like it's a sacred space. And so she has all this stuff. And she said, go on back there and see Maya's canes. And so she had them all in a um, two or three cane holder, like the umbrella holder type things. And she was like, go ahead and take them out, touch them, you know, whatever you want to do. So I was looking at all of them, touching all of them, holding them, everything, everything. And there was one that I loved that was metal and had like um, um, polished gemstones all over it. Like the, the tumbled kind that you see at the health, you know, at the health food store or whatever. And just all over this metal, super intricate silver metal cane. And so that ended up being my favorite one. And so I took it to the mirror that she had in her living room. And I stood there and actually I had on this dress <laughs> and I had a, a white wrap, but the wrap was tied different, which is a way that I never tied my wrap. I don't know why I tied it that way that day. I guess, you know, things, how they go, life. And I, I've been wrapping my hair since I was 15. So to inadvertently just randomly wrap my hair a whole new way is a thing for me. And so um, I take the cane, I stand in the mirror and I jumped and I went, whoa. And, and <laughs> Dr. Mim said, what do you see? And I said, I see, I feel like I'm one of y'all. When I look at myself in the mirror, I see that I'm one of y'all. And to me, y'all is like the women who, as they get into their elder status, become the wisdom keepers. And, but in their younger years, they're the artists and the thinkers and the ones who travel around the world and collect stories and create things and teach people, you know, our, our artists. And then they take all of that learning into their wisdom years and they become our wisdom keepers and our teachers and our Mayas and our Dr. Men's. And so I looked in the mirror and I, she, I, I yelled out, whoa, and she <laughs> said, what do you see? And I said, I see that I'm one of, one of y'all. But what I couldn't explain to her was I, I looked like I was 80. Like I looked in the mirror. I have a photograph of it. I'm going to send it to you when you get off the phone. You'll, you, you're gonna, it, I, you showed it to me once. Oh, on, I did show it to and you. It is so startling your whole face is i look blind and wizened yeah. and you're just 
thicker <laughs> and you're you're old holding the cane <laughs> yeah you're just yeah um you're yeah you're I forgot like I showed you the picture. yeah it, it is so startling because when you first told me the story it's such a compelling story just as you told it again um but there's like a little woo-woo detector in me going off and I'm like really and then you showed me the photo and I'm like oh my you know Jeff never <laughs> doubt there's a god because yeah. um because that is uh yeah that was startling to see that photo um, it was an important moment for me too because my songwriting partner passed away that night I was in Seattle to do the show at the um, Langston Hughes Community Center for Dr. Mims. There's some people when they ask you to do stuff, you say yes and you go. And so she asked me to do the show. And my, my songwriting partner also was my guitar player for a long time on the road. Um, not the, my, my whole career, but much of it. But we were songwriting partners. And um, he wasn't with me because he was already having health issues. And then I got a call that night that he passed away. And so I haven't really assessed all of that and what it all meant all put together. But there's something important about that day and what I saw in myself and that he left that day too. There's just something about it. And so yeah, that's that story the for, idea of yeah. a sacred object. I fully believe that if I did not have that cane in my hand, that I don't know that I would have seen into that portal in that moment like the sacredness and also i just wanted to say too that dr mim said she had all the canes because it was a joke between her and maya because dr mim still wears high heels and, she, and maya told her you better stop wearing them high heels you're gonna mess up your knees and your feet and you know because they're in their they, you know, they were in their 80s when maya passed and so she said as a joke or as a final playful nod she left her all the walking sticks <laughs> <laughs> that's well don't take umbrage if I send you a cane for Christmas or something. <laughs> um, I will not. <laughs> it will be special to me. <laughs> I, I kind of hope that this doesn't put you on the spot. And you can just <laughs> tell me to screw off if it does. Um, <laughs> okay. But... Um, I mean, there you are holding Maya Angelou's cane, seeing yourself as a wizened old wisdom keeper, you know, doing something at the Langston Hughes Center, which I, I didn't even know. Um, and to me, that sort of conjures this question, is that do you feel that it is sort of incumbent upon you in some way to step into the role of the the wisdom keeper i mean what ralph ellison james baldwin langston hughes alice walker my angela i mean you know i can go on um especially in the african-american tradition where it's been oh god so palpable and so precious and important that work i mean you've won Grammys and put out records. You've had a, a life of incredible achievement. I mean, where are you kind of along that road, that legacy road in your mind right now? I, so when you use the word incumbent, does that mean that you are the natural next 
person to walk into that? Yeah. Incumbent means just naturally inherited? Y yeah, like it, it's that it's almost your, I don't want to say it's your responsibility, but do you feel that that is the kind of natural in that really original word of meaning of the word natural next step for your life? That's why I wanted to specify the words because we, we use words, but sometimes we mean different things when we use them mm -hmm. because I don't see it as a responsibility necessarily, although we can kind of use incumbent that way. Mm -hmm. But I do see it as a natural next step. Um, trying to explain it for me, if I just continue, I feel that if I continue to be honest with myself about what my next steps are, that that is naturally where I will be and become mm -hmm. these last two years is the first time I've seen people see me anything like that way. Cause I feel like when I'm speaking that I'm talking about regular things, but then there are people who are much younger than me or younger than me on their spiritual path. And they're like drinking it up. But those, so much of that are things that I didn't know when I was in my twenties, I was learning that stuff in my twenties and thirties. And so now things that are normal to me are our wisdom for other people. Is just now becoming that. And I feel like as long as I continue to be honest and continue to learn, continue to go where my heart and soul tell me to go, that I think it is just natural for me. But I also think there's a part of me that feels that even if I didn't want that, that it would be hard to stop it yeah. because of the lineage I come from, which is why I keep that picture on my desk all the time. Because the more I learn about myself, the more I realize I naturally do things that are of my lineage. And I come from some very strong, wise, interesting women yeah. and a female lineage. Male too, but I'm especially connected to my female lineage. And so I feel like if I just keep being me, that I'm going to be like my aunts. And then eventually I'm going to be like my grandmother. And eventually I'll be like my great-grandmother. So, but... As we know, free will can always mess things up. But I've always been a person who, that's really how I started my spiritual path because I wanted to know from a higher power what I was supposed to be doing mm -hmm. with my life as a whole. And so when I was 19 and 20, I started really asking like, what do I do and how do I make the most out of this life? And at that time, what I discovered, which I think was the right thing at that time, was that, um, Music is also a generational thing in our family. But it wasn't just about making music. It was about what I was going to make music for and what the intention was and what stories I was going to tell and how I was going to add to the world and to myself. And um, I think that that's, I know that that is why I write the kind of music I write in, this, in the subject matter and the stories I tell because and that's why it is a spiritual work for me. Because back then it was a, a, something that I felt was presented to me as an option that I said yes to. And so now where I am now, I'm looking at my options and what I have the opportunity to say yes to, but it's a little bit harder to see because I have this whole developed life. And so is it supposed to be big? Is it, am I supposed to write a bestseller or am I supposed to just write? Am I supposed to go all around the world and talk to everyone or do I just talk to the kids at the school on the corner? Like I don't. I'm trying to understand who I am in this time. Yeah. But what I do know is that it still comes from that place of listening and 
wanting to learn and give. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm I'm having like uh, right now, just in the world, the where it is with COVID and people's people are in a great place of need and have a lot of fear and anxiety and man, it's heavy. And we're all trying to serve every way we can. And you know, every week I write an email that goes out to a lot of people, like a million people, and um, <clears throat> I pour my soul into it. And I put my email, my personal email at the bottom of it, which is <laughs> probably crazy. Um, and uh, then I spend two or three days answering every single one of those emails that I get in personally. And I don't know really how long I can do that for because, you know, right now maybe it's like 500 emails or something. And But they're not like, hey, how you doing? That was great. It was, they're like, yeah. here's my life. Um, yeah. And... By Tuesday, I'm sort of uh, spontaneously bursting into tears, <laughs> like a lot of time. Um, thank God it's Friday that we're doing this, because otherwise it'd be a total wreck. And um, and I didn't I've, really... I've been spontaneously bursting into tears today. Oh, right. <laughs> well, if it happens, you're, we're in good company. Misery loves company, as they say. Um, and I didn't really understand what I was going through physiologically. And then I got on the call with a friend of mine, Marie Forleo. You might know her. And she... Mm, um, I knew my Marie. I met Marie at Super Soul. Oh, yeah. Right. And she's like, Jeff, you have compassion fatigue. And she's like, this is what, you know, first responders have and other folks. And I'm like, huh? Oh. And I'm like, oh, right. Oh, And yeah. she's like, you've got to just, you have to take care of yourself first. This is why first responders burn out in a couple of years because it it's coming in. They're taking so much in and believe me, I realize my place of privilege in this equation. I'm hardly on the front line. I'm just doing what I can where I am right now. Um, but I guess that, that was leading me to a question or an observation because I think, as you said, whether you kind of actively step into that role of teacher of like, I'm going to write the great next, you know, American novel or personal <laughs> development book or whatever. People already see, they're already projecting their own spiritual journey onto you. Um, that's already happening. And I wonder if what your experience is like with that, does that feed you or, or drain you or, a, some form of combination of, of both, um, just holding that much space for people. I am shaking my head as you're speaking because I don't get to have this conversation a lot with people. Hmm. Um, because I don't think unless you are a person who has like that, um, for lack of better words, invisible interaction with millions of people, unless you have it, you don't know anything. You don't even know it exists. You don't even know like that there's an energy that exists. I, so when I became the public eye, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know that that was a thing, mm. that the invisible exchange. I also didn't know that it was gonna be this big or that there would be millions of people who listened to my music and had emotional responses and projections. I didn't know at all. And for, I feel like the first 10 years, there was this 
the um, way that it affected me physiologically that I just never knew what to attribute it to. Cause I would think, why am I always so tired? <laughs> like, like everybody else gets up and goes to breakfast and they talk and they're dressed at breakfast time. <laughs> and to me, it was just like the confounding how people could have that type of energy. And so also what I, I mean, I also learned that I'm also just a very sensitive person. And so not only was I having that invisible relationship, but I'm also very sensitive to everything anyway. I didn't know either of these things about myself. And so this last 10 years from around 2009 was a really pivotal moment in my life. So from 2009 to today, a big part of my spiritual practice has become how to continue to nourish myself given everything that I take on and everything that I give. Yeah, it's funny. My girls- They just came they in? They just came in. <laughs> so I'll tell you about, this is actually a great little funny segue. And they're looking at me askance, or like, dad, when are you gonna be finished up? Um, <laughs> you know, my girls are in school and you know they're bouncing off the walls a little bit. So my, uh, my middle child, Lolly, is a devoted dancer. She loves to dance. And my little pipsqueak, Micah, has become her student and uh, and every day in this room, uh, Lolly um, becomes the taskmaster. And for two hours, without fail, they never miss a day, she teaches my little one how to dance. And they just are religiously devoted to it. And it has just been like the most precious thing to watch. Um, I love it. So they like get out of our studio? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're looking at me like, Dad, come on, you know, hurry it up here. Um <laughs> Yeah, I guess, you know, the last thing I, I would say is, you know, I was sick for a chunk of this quarantine, you know, which was mm -hmm. uncomfortable just from an anxiety perspective, if nothing else. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I started getting into this dude, Muji. I don't know if you know this guy, M-O-O-J-I. Yeah. yeah. He's just become my go-to thing. And I was, when I was really kind of very sick, um, I was doing maybe like two hours a day with Muji, um, you know, just on YouTube, you know, and, but it, I now, but it like blew me to a whole nother place. And so sometimes, you know, there are these times in life that seem really uncomfortable and, but that turn out to be these inflection points of tremendous growth. And uh, I've heard you talk about that too. And it's, um, it's just always a reminder that when we're there, when we're in, when we're at rock bottom, you know, there is a, there is a brighter day ahead. I think that's enough. I think that's also a wonderful way to regard this stillness. Cause a lot of people have an issue being still because when you get still, you start to feel your stuff. But it's like, as soon as you do, it, the, the, the fear of the stuff you've been hiding from doesn't last long. For me, I can say, some of the hardest things I've been through and I had to just stop and look at my shadow, my dark stuff, and it lasts a week, literally. And I'm like, okay, what do I do next? Who do I call? Okay, so I need to call this person and talk to them. It just, it's never as scary as you think. 
And once you once you have that first experience of facing that darkness inside of yourself, then you realize you can do it again in other areas of your life. And so I don't fear stillness. And I think that I my prayer, my prayer, my prayer is that there are people in this world who had to go through this time of forced monasticism, like you call it, but that they come out realizing that their shadow was nowhere near as scary as they thought it was. Because people like that are more potent in the world because you are able to say no to things and yes to things and try things and love bigger because you're not afraid of the darkness as afraid. So I just, I, that's been the favorite thing about my life and I hope more people can get that too. That's beautiful. It's so funny. It's anytime I ever sense any reluctance from you to become that wisdom holder, I just realize you're already there. <laughs> <You know>? uh <-huh>. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I was listening to a message that you sent me. I think I told you when I was walking through the hills here in Topanga and it was the resonance of your voice as much as anything you said. And, you know, I disappeared. It was only the world, you know? And of course, that's the goal of any spiritual practice is to find that f sense of self-transcendence. You know, what you found on, you know, mountaintops in Hawaii, you know, sometimes we just get a glimpse of it and that's all we get. Um, but it's beautiful. I'm very, um, I'm very grateful um, for my burgeoning relationship with you. You've, uh, you've inspired me and given me uh, a lot to live for, so thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show with India Ari. Be sure to check out her short film, Welcome Home, shot at the commune on YouTube. And always feel free to email me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com. I try to respond to every single message. That's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>